0: welcome to the energy policy now podcast from the climate center for energy policy at the university of pennsylvania i'm andy stone energy justice and poverty have come to the forefront of public dialogue and are one example of long-standing inequities that continue to persist in the united states in this country a third of households find it difficult to afford the energy they need to heat and cool their homes and to provide lighting and cooking In response, federal and state agencies have turned increasing attention toward policies that might alleviate the energy cost burden. Yet the success of these policies has been mixed, and in many cases programs that might reduce energy burden, such as through increased energy efficiency, have been shown to provide least benefit to communities that need them most. On today's podcast, we'll look at energy poverty in the United States and at the challenge of effectively addressing the problem through public policy solutions. We'll also discuss the socioeconomic, racial, and geographic underpinnings of energy poverty and some of the historic factors that have contributed to inequities. My guest is Tony Reams, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan and leader of the Urban Energy Justice Lab. Tony's work focuses on disparities in residential energy generation, consumption, and affordability. Tony is also a virtual visiting scholar here at the Climate Center. Tony, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Andy.
0: So uh, the issue of energy justice has gotten increasing attention, and that's despite the fact that the issue really has deep historic roots. Why is energy justice getting more sustained national attention?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the you know, as with everything, the pandemic has really highlighted um, a bunch of disparities, whether it's, you know, geographic disparities, racial disparities, um, age disparities, um, and energy. I think the issue has come to the fore um, because everybody's at home, right? We have this shift in the energy burden from people going to school during the day, people going to work. Now everyone's at home, everyone's on their computer, Um, And so people are seeing uh, increased energy consumption. And for people who were already struggling to pay their energy bills, um, the crisis has really heightened and highlighted that issue.
0: So your work at the University of Michigan and with the Urban Energy Justice Lab focuses on energy poverty specifically. How do you define energy poverty?
1: Yeah, so um, under the broad umbrella of energy justice, um, you have a bunch of terms. Um, I use energy poverty because it kind of relates to this inability to afford um, or adequately afford energy services, whether that means uh, you don't have access to to different technology that can reduce your energy consumption and reduce your energy bill, or that your energy cost is just too high based on your income. Um, There are different measures of energy poverty, whether it's Um, 10% of income, 6% of your income, um, but anything that seems like a larger proportion of your income is going to energy costs that makes it unaffordable that you end up, you know, foregoing basic necessities like food or medicine, or you cut back and keep your home at an unhealthy temperature. And so there are some um, symptoms of energy poverty that we can use as proxies for understanding if people are suffering.
0: You know, and, and, and the, the data is pretty amazing. I, I, I wouldn't have known this. Okay, so in this country, a third of households, as I said in the intro, find it difficult to afford the energy uh, to afford energy that they need. Is, is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, the Residential Energy Consumption Survey uh, is a survey conducted by the Department of Energy uh, roughly three to five years, every three to five years. Um, and their last survey actually highlighted this issue of um, energy insecurity, energy poverty. Um, and again, 33% of U.S. households face some form of energy poverty, um, whether it's you know unaffordable energy bills, foregoing basic necessities like food or medicine, um, or keeping their home at an unhealthy temperature. Um, and so when we think about that, um, and this was survey data from 2015, um, we've seen additional studies during the pandemic that show um, that's just been exacerbated. And uh, there are clear racial and socioeconomic disparities that show up with uh, Black and Latinx households experiencing at a higher level um, when compared to white households, um, older households experiencing energy insecurity and energy poverty at greater levels. And so, again, this issue has been heightened by um, this kind of economic and uh, health downturn that we're experiencing
0: you know one of the themes that comes through in your research is that energy poverty is often tied to certain places or neighborhoods right it, it tends to occur in clusters and you've looked at energy poverty neighborhoods in Kansas City and in Detroit what what commonalities have you found
1: yeah i like to say i'm not a geographer but i play one in my research
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, <laughs> because i recognize that there is this importance to place, right? Where people live, how those places developed over time. Um, There's some clear connections that people are starting to look at between kind of historic redlining that segregated people by race um, and kind of the persistence of income segregation where you have clusters of low-income households. Um, And what you see is that in those areas uh, of higher uh, minority populations, higher uh, low-income households, this kind of confluence of challenges that are centered a lot on the housing consumption, um, and so you see inefficient housing, inefficient technology and appliances in the houses that um, cause people to waste energy or use energy less efficiently, which then drives up your energy energy costs. And so you can begin to kind of map out things like you know what stores have LED bulbs, um, something as simple as that, or what is the cost of LED bulbs in certain communities, and see how um, place is tied to a lack of access to energy efficiency, um, tied to energy inefficient homes, um, and also tied to shutoffs and high energy burdens. And so all of these things can be tied to place. And so um, in my research, I usually call for a targeted place-based approach to solutions.
0: So I want to make sure I understand. So we're talking about older neighborhoods. So I'm assuming that's older housing stock, less uh, efficient housing, less right. well insulated. And you also mentioned the the access to to you know like lighting. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. So um, <clears throat> so again, like you say, you know, if we can look at uh, the time period that homes were built, right, and we know that neighborhoods were built around the same time. And so in an area, those homes were built under certain building codes. And so if they haven't been upgraded or renovated uh, in recent time, which is pretty common when you have lower incomes because people have less disposable income to do that, you'll see clusters of housing that's inefficient. Um, And if people have low incomes, then you see clusters of high energy burdens or high energy poverty. Um, The light bulb study, um, interestingly enough, we did in and around the Detroit area, because people say, "Well, why don't you know low-income people just buy the most efficient technology?" Um, and so we wanted to see: you know, Do low-income households in their community have access to something as simple as an LED bulb? And what we found was that you know stores in poor neighborhoods um, may or may not have LED bulbs at all on their shelves, um, and if they did, they were two times the cost that they were. Um, out in the suburbs and higher income areas that had the advantage of stores like Walmart and Target and Home Depot and Lowe's um, that aren't located in many of our um, urban cores.
0: So these are kind of like food deserts, but they're, they're hardware store deserts in a sense.
1: Yeah. Or, like. you know, you could call it energy efficiency deserts, right? Because mm-hmm. the technology um, just isn't in stores where people live. And so if you don't have a car or you, you know, don't have the funds to pay for delivery, um, it could be very difficult to you know, get a new highly efficient um, dishwasher or a refrigerator uh, because it's not in your local store.
0: Or if it is, it sounds like it's going to be more expensive. More expensive, you know, it- yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, because you you have this metric that you use in in the research that you've done, it's called the energy use intensity. And so basically, what we're seeing is that not only are the the energy bills a higher portion of the income uh, and the expenditures for low income families, but the houses are less efficient. So their energy use intensity, the, the amount of energy they use to do the same task is actually higher, which adds to the burden, if I understand that correctly.
1: That's correct. Uh, Energy use intensity is a a metric that's used to compare um, energy consumption across countries. And so a lot of times that's measured per capita or per population of a country. And so um, it stuck out to me as something that we could compare um, apples to apples. Because right now, if you look at consumption, just general consumption, um, what you find is that on average, uh, low-income households, often households of color actually consume less, less energy, so say less kilowatt hours, right? Um, not as much electricity when compared to white households or higher income households. And so when we target energy efficiency programs, most often we target highest consumers. Um, and so inherently those programs are going uh, to be racially and income biased to white households and higher income households. But the energy use intensity metric allows us to say, okay, for the same size of homes, so dividing by square foot, you know, how much energy are homes consuming per square foot? And that's where you see those numbers flip, where um, households of color, lower income households, um, older um, householders have a higher energy use intensity. So they're using less energy, but they're using that energy less efficiently. And that's where you cause problems with affordability.
0: Well, to take that as the next step then, so uh, as you just alluded to, (laughs) one means of reducing the economic burden of energy is to improve energy efficiency, right? So you've looked at energy efficiency programs and you found as you just kind of began to talk about, you found that they have been much less helpful in reducing the energy cost burden in low income communities than in communities that are better off economically. Can you tell me a little bit more about why that is?
1: Yeah, this is why Andy, um, an equity lens is so important to um, program development um, and program implementation primarily. Um, Again, a lot of our energy efficiency programs um, have been mandated or designed to reduce energy consumption, right? So just how many kilowatt hours can you save so we don't have to build as many power plants. Um, and to get to that target, you need to go after the highest energy consumers, right? Um, and so there's a inherent flaw in that type of um, approach because, again, it does target people who consume more, which are often people who uh, live in larger homes, have more gadgets, um, you know, have more luxury to consume more energy. Um, and so now we see that states are um, including low income carve outs in their energy efficiency programs because there's a recognition that um, these programs don't serve the people who need it the most or the people who are actually living in the most inefficient housing. Um, and so whether you do that by a place-based approach and target certain neighborhoods or zip codes, or whether you do that with some racial equity lens and target minority populations, communities with higher uh, minority populations, um, or have a senior carve-out program or a renter program. Because, again, these are all um, sociodemographic characteristics that we know um, are associated with higher energy burdens and higher inefficiency.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about what these these carve-outs look like?
1: Yeah, so we um, did a a project where we wanted to look at uh, utility-sponsored programs or utility-funded programs. Um, now, when I say utility-funded, it's usually the large utilities. Um, it's funded by a ratepayer. so we all pay for these programs, right? So they, if everybody looks at their bill, they'll see a, a charge somewhere on the bill for an energy efficiency program um, in their state. And so we take a state like Michigan who says X percent of your dollars um, that you collect from your ratepayers to fund all types of energy efficiency programs, whether it's rebates on light bulbs or uh, rebates on efficient appliances, some of that money should go to low-income households, people that make 200% or less of um, poverty. Um, some states say what that percent should be, so 10% of that money should go to low-income households. Some states say it should be proportionate to the amount of low-income households in your service territory. Um, And so we wanted to see, you know, how well are utilities across the country um, doing? And so we created this um, energy efficiency equitable baseline um, tool um, that's on our website, urbanenergyjusticelab.com. And you can click on your utility and see how well your utility is funding it's a low income population based on the proportion of low income population in the service territory. Um, some are doing great, some are not. Um, and I think that is the challenge, um, to push utilities to think about how do you serve the population that is most in need, um, and ensure that they're benefiting from the programs that they're paying into. Now
0: I want to jump into that, that, uh, metric that you just mentioned. It's a bit of a mouthful. Again, the energy efficiency <laughs> equitable uh, baseline. And and what that does, uh, per my understanding, is that essentially measures the extent to which energy policies offer equal benefit to consumers regardless of their economic level. So, so what does this measure then is kind of the bottom line. What does it tell us about how much investment in, in efficiency needs to be directed towards communities, where energy poverty is common. You, you know, you you've hinted that it's more, uh, but, but can you give us a little bit more? Actually, there's a very interesting metric I wanna bring up mm-hmm. before I jump away from that. In some of these energy waste reduction programs that you've talked about, um, the benefits were 10 times, almost 10 times greater for higher income households than low income households. So there's a huge gap that's, mm-hmm. that's there. So how, how do you direct enough funding to the lower uh, income communities that they get the same proportional, at least same proportional benefit out of any policy program, uh, that that the higher income groups would get.
1: Yeah, that's a really great question, Andy. And so, um, so we call it the E3B for short. Um, and again, we use the terminology baseline because, um, when we talk to advocates about this metric, um, They didn't want utilities to see it as a ceiling, right? They, you know, if you have forty percent of your population in your utility territory that's low income, we wanted to see if forty percent of the energy efficiency investment was spent on low income households, right? And so, again, that's a baseline. (laughs) And so, I I, like I mentioned earlier, the lowest hanging fruit is uh, people who have the time and resources and capacity to recognize that these programs even exist. Um, you know, I don't know how many people actually look at their utility bill and look at all the different fees and charges that are on there um, outside of you know what's the bottom line number. Um,
0: well, I work you know, in energy, and I don't look at it. So For, yeah, for a long
1: time, I didn't either, until I mm-hmm. you know, started studying this and having students bring in different utility bills from across the country to talk about how they look. Um, And so recognizing that, oh, my state has um, a state-mandated energy efficiency program that I pay, you know, 0.001% of my energy costs into each month. um, That ends up collecting millions of dollars that are then distributed through all these different types of programs. Um, You know, so it may come in the bill. It may be on the utility's website to find out what you can participate in. Um, but again, you have to have the, the resources and capacity to go out and seek that or be able to pay attention to it, to be able to wait for a rebate if it's a rebate. Um, so pay the upfront cost and then wait to be <laughs> reimbursed at some later time. Um, and so what you see in a lot of communities now and um, you know, partnering with trusted partners, um, so whether that's community-based organizations or um, energy service providers that, you know, um, are uh, in the community. Um, so there's a company in Detroit called Walker Miller Energy Services, um, an African-American woman owned company um, and they're a great community partner for um, our utility here in Michigan, uh, DTE. Um, and they do neighborhood campaigns. You know, They go to neighborhoods, they had something they called the Front Porch Initiative um, where they were going to people's front porch and talking to them about energy efficiency, uh, primarily in low income and African-American communities. Um, Finding interpreters for um, some of our Arabic communities and Latinx communities. Because if you don't go to people, it's really hard for them to find this information on their own. And so trying to figure out how you wade through that. Um, so, you know, people who, again, are paying into these programs can actually reap the benefits.
0: You know, um, there have been programs as well that offer tax incentives and rebates. For energy efficiency upgrades, but my understanding is those also aren't particularly helpful for the neighborhoods that we're talking about. Is that right?
1: That's so true. Um, you know, if you if you look at you know who benefits from especially the energy efficiency in our federal tax code, uh, you have to reach a certain level of um, tax liability to be able to benefit from um, those opportunities. And so, if you don't make a ton of money and you don't spend a ton of money. Um, on energy efficiency, then it's highly unlikely that you'll be able to participate. And so, you know, luckily for low-income households, we do have programs like the Weatherization Assistance Program, um, which started in the 70s. And so that's our nation's longest running federal energy efficiency program for low-income households. But they're often, you know, long wait lists um, across the country for the program. but if you are fortunate enough to participate, um, it really brings down people's energy costs, makes their homes more healthy, more efficient by sealing windows or replacing windows, new insulation, new HVAC systems. Um, and so that's really one of the shining lights uh, kind of in our, our energy efficiency safety net system. Um, and I hope that, you know, over time we're able to expand that program to more households um, and, and see it as a kind of you know, part of our infrastructure plan, right? You know, how do we go through, create jobs to weatherize and make um, tons of homes energy efficient? And so homes are good then for 20 years. And in 20 years, we do this process again, where we go through and um, improve the infrastructure of our housing quality.
0: Well, it's interesting because that's a federal program that you've just brought up. So I want to kind of jump to kind of the big news these days, and that's Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure plan. And as part of that plan, Forty percent of clean energy investment would be directed towards low-income uh, communities. In in your view, uh, if you were to you know talk to the people who are who are, you know going to write those uh, you know write those laws, what would be the best way to direct that money?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about um, this idea to actually you know, look at our nation's housing infrastructure. Um, again, this idea to think about housing as infrastructure. I'm a former civil engineer and you know, did a lot of you know, stormwater design, stormwater review, road plans. Um, and in local government, that's what we did. You had a five year capital improvement plan. Um, sometimes it was longer than that, but you knew where your old roads and pipes were. And so each year that plan was updated as you replace plant, um, pipes and streets. And so let's do the same thing with housing. Um, and let's use some of the characteristics of a place. Again, like I talked about places with high minority populations, places with uh, high uh, low income households, places that have borne the burden of our energy system. So they're over polluted um, or they have Superfund sites. Um, You know, how do we target those communities? And so the people who are living there can now breathe fresh air inside their homes. They can live in them more comfortably. Um, I mean, this is also a climate adaptation plan, right? You know, as the temperatures get warmer or we see extreme winter temperatures, like what happened in Texas a few weeks ago, um, you know, shutting down their power system. You know, if people's homes were more efficient, you know, you wouldn't have people freezing to death inside their homes. Um, And so, again, this this can touch so many levels and areas of kind of how we move forward as a country um, on environmental justice, on energy justice, on climate justice.
0: You know, are there uh, programs? So we just talked about some federal programs and some federal targeting of of money. But are there uh, programs at the state or local level that have been really, really successful at targeting Energy poverty in low-income and minority neighborhoods. Are there any good examples that that should kind of we should take note of here?
1: Yeah, um, a couple I like to always talk about is um, there's definitely some learnings from our last economic recession, right? Um, you know, billions of dollars into um, programs that focused on environmental sustainability, and so there, you know, five billion dollars went into the weatherization assistance program, this federal low income energy efficiency program that usually gets around $200 million nationally. And so in uh, 2009, $5 billion went into that program to again, think about doing a massive um, push for energy efficiency. Um, And so there was a project in Kansas City called the Green Impact Zone, which really took a community-based approach to um, working with neighborhoods to get home signed up, to work with landlords who often don't participate in these type of programs, um, to make people comfortable with um, having contractors come in their house. And so uh, what you saw was that, you know, people wanted to know like, oh, my neighbor is getting something done to her house. What, you know, what's going on? I want to do the same thing and sharing information between community, having uh, weatherization house parties where people would come over and show off their new furnace, um, and so those type of you know community level, community based um, opportunities to say we're going to take this block and we're going to weatherize every house on this block, um, and we're going to make this block an example for what could happen in the next block, in the next block, um, and so I think you know if Biden creates his um, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps, um, just this massive workforce of people ready to um, create local labor, uh, local projects that stay within communities. Um, Yeah, I think we'll be off to a great start.
0: You know, I just want to jump in here and ask you a, a kind of a statistical question here. When we're talking about weatherization and energy efficiency improvements, uh, and households, what what kind of um, you know cost savings can we really get? What what's the percentage, and, and and how much does this really impact people who are really struggling to to, to pay their bills? Does it does it uh, make it significantly easier? Does it get them over the hump, or is it still a challenge?
1: Yeah, um, you know we 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 see numbers from the federal program that say people save you know three hundred to five hundred dollars a year, um, and we're talking about households that spend. 10 to 30 percent of their income on energy costs, and so a $300 savings um, is huge, right? Especially if you aren't putting any capital costs into those upgrades, Um, and again, that can last for 15 to 20 years. Um, And so, $300 to a household that's at 200 percent of poverty um, for the next 15 or 20 years uh, that's a huge savings. Um, Now, these programs should also be combined with. You know, any type of rate design, you know, a lot of people are thinking about, uh, can we have income-based rates? Um, and so, you know, can a state set a target and say, no one in my state is going to pay more than 10% of their income for energy costs? And, you know, thinking about what the paperwork looks like. That,
0: That'd that um, be like a sliding scale?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I know there are some pilots, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on, on who's doing that now, but I know there are some pilots trying to test this out. Um, but, you know, those type of programs, um, automatic discounts for um, households 65 and above. Um, so combining the kind of the payment and rate structure with the energy efficiency, um, other people are asking for um, forgiving arrearages during the COVID period, um, because people are racking up massive um, utility debt. Um, and so again, this, this, this there's not a, a a silver bullet for this program, but I think we need a comprehensive um, energy poverty strategy um, that could get everybody on on the right path.
0: You know one other element here that we haven't really jumped into yet is the uh, the you know the potential that renewable energy, uh, community scale, um, you know, distributed scale, for example, solar, can have to reduce uh, to reduce energy costs. And last fall, uh, had a guest on this podcast, Sarah Braun, and she's a professor at the University of Connecticut. And she talked about how challenging it can be to develop clean energy, such as, for example, rooftop solar in older and urban neighborhoods. If, if you experienced this in the neighborhoods that you've seen, Kansas City, Detroit, elsewhere?
1: Yeah, that is. That is a really good, (laughs) good point. Um, We see that, you know, so I talked about housing quality, right? Um, So one of the barriers, once you get beyond the cost of renewable energy, uh, but one of the barriers is roof space and roof quality um, and roof condition. Um, And so we know that, you know, if houses are already um, suffering from deferred maintenance, um, you end up having, you know, older roofs, and so you have to replace the roof before you can install any solar, which could be expensive. You also have um, electrical system challenges in older housing. Um, and so, yeah, solar in older communities in lower income communities can definitely face a ton of barriers, um, but that shouldn't keep us from um, implementing it, right? Uh, I'm just finishing up a study now that, you know, uses some data from the National Renewable Energy Lab to measure, you know, the solar suitability of homes across the country or areas across the country. Uh, And what you find in low income communities and communities of color, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the homes um, are actually solar suitable based on the size of the roof. um, The tilt of the roof and the solar radiance. Um, and so solar potential is actually there now when you dig down you know there are other things that we have to do to make that possible but trying to think about community solar which you know removes the barriers of the roof um, and allows people to subscribe to a solar um, farm that may be in the neighborhood and maybe outside of the neighborhood is another opportunity and um, so you look at programs like uh, DC solar for all um, You know, a very dense city with limited open space, uh, but they're doing a mix of rooftop solar and community solar for low, particularly for low income households. Um, Illinois is doing the same thing. They have a solar for all program um, and they're targeting environmental justice communities, saying that 20% of all solar development must happen in environmental justice communities. Um, California has had their solar affordable. Single family housing program for years. Um, and you see nonprofits like uh, Grid Alternatives, you know, putting solar on low income households, calling it a jobs program and an energy justice program. What, what
0: is that grid, grid alternatives? What is that
1: it's called? It's called SASH, S A S H, the Solar Affordable Single Family Housing Program. Uh, and it's funded by um, the investor owned utilities there to actually um, cover the cost of low income solar um, for customers that are at like, I think 200% of poverty.
0: Let, let me ask you a final question, if I may. So um, you've noted in your research that many of the people who develop and write policy, uh, f- you know, uh, for energy efficiency programs, uh, etc, focus broadly on economics, but may not be attuned to the challenges surrounding energy justice specifically. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And, and what recommendations uh, you may have to, to address this?
1: Yeah, that's, um, again, I think, you know, the lack of an equity lens, um, inherently creates disparities in the development and the implementation of policies and programs. And so um, like I, I talked earlier about looking at consumption numbers versus energy use intensity. Um, when you look at consumption, again, you're comparing, uh, apples and oranges, but when you normalize it by a square foot, then you're able to see, um, the true disparities that exist and, uh, create burdens for, um, households of color, low-income households, renters, and seniors, um. I think you know there's this concept of recognition justice where you, you know, recognize um, the needs or the varying needs of different populations. Um, we don't collect enough data on this, right? Um, so we don't know if, um, you know, on a broad scale, if African American households are suffering more than white ho- households, or if, you know, low income white households in Appalachia are suffering more than you know, other households. And so getting to um, some way to collect data, um, I think is key uh, and still protect people's privacy. Um, coming up with metrics that we, you know, want to measure and track over time uh, for us to know that we're actually moving forward in, um, in an equitable and just manner, uh, I think is, is key. Um, so there's no real metrics in kind of the energy efficiency, clean energy space. Um, to say, you know, where are we right now hmm. on, some, <laughs> on some playing field as far as equity in the space? Where do we want to go and how do we get there? And um, So we're fortunate in the Urban Energy Justice Lab to have some funding from Energy Foundation and Joyce Foundations out of Chicago um, to try to create this uh, through a collaborative process with different stakeholders to say, what should we be measuring? um and where do we want the clean energy industry to go to ensure that it is equitable and just um, and then lastly i think um, if i had a, a magic wand that the country would come up with some uh, energy poverty strategy um, again that includes those metrics to say here's where we are uh, we know households are struggling we know households don't have access to efficiency to renewables And here's how we get there. Um, You know, we're going to work on affordability first. Then we're going to go through and weatherize and make homes more efficient. Um, And then we're going to, you know, set a plan to do this again in 15 years. And then 15 years after that. And um, and really just get us on a path to um, energy security for all households.
0: Tony, thanks very much for talking.
1: It's been great talking to you, Andy. Thank you for having me.
0: Today's guest has been Tony Reams, leader of the Urban Energy Justice Lab at the University of Michigan. For more energy policy conversations and news, visit the Climate Center for Energy Policy's website, where you'll find research, blog posts, and online events on a range of energy policy topics. For updates from the center, subscribe to our Twitter feed. Our handle is at Energy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.